to the YBF podcast. This is the YBF politics vertical. So that means we have another illustrious guest. And this time I'm semi-nervous and extremely excited. Now, y'all, y'all know if I'm nervous, then that means it's a big freaking deal. Okay. So this is, this is a big deal. So today we have someone who is not only running for re-election, but has made amazing waves, amazing impact already in the U.S. Senate. And we have to talk to him because it's it's about time somebody comes and talk to us, the Black women who are the backbone of this Democratic Party. And he has plenty to say, you guys, and we have plenty to ask. So I want to welcome Senator Chris Coons to the show. Hello. Thank you, Natasha, to be on. When you said taking grin in the Senate, I thought I should change to this much more serious. No, we're, we're not serious, uh, serious. We're only half serious around here. I'm in one and slower to my leg so I can relax. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. So thank you so much for being here. And honestly, let me just let you all know, yes, Senator Coons is running for re-election and technically he doesn't have to do everything he's doing to speak to us. He is, this is obviously, um, I'm sorry, the Delaware primary is coming up. Um, he has it in the bag to me. It would seem he has in the bag, but there's also the general elections coming up in November. And honestly, people like him who have proven themselves do not have to come out and say what they want to say and try to earn our vote. But Senator Coons is doing it anyway. So I applaud you for that and I thank you for that. And I cannot wait to get into what we need to get into. So thank you for being here. All right. Thank you for a chance to be on. Yes, of course. So before we even get into everything, what what made you just wake up one day and say, you know, I'm going to take Senator, soon to be VP Joe Biden's, um, at the time, soon to be VP Joe Biden's spot in the U.S. Senate. I'm, I'm going to be U.S. Senator. Like, how did you wake up one day and just make this decision? What inspired you to be here? Uh, well, that's a great question. And you're going to have to cut me off when I go on too long in the answer. <laughs> uh, the, the simplest, shortest answer answer is that I was the county executive, um, which is a, it's a funny thing. It, there's only a dozen states that have them. It's like the mayor. Um, there's only 900,000 people in Delaware. We're a tiny little state. We're a very low lying state, just like Louise is running the second largest government in the state. I represented 500,000 people and I've been doing that for 10 years. And Bo Biden, uh, who was uh, our attorney general and who many had assumed was going to run for his dad's seat, called me in January of 2010 and said, yeah, I really am not running for this Senate seat. I really do not want to run for the Senate seat. And I think you ought to do it. And I kind of went, whoa, hang on a minute. Um, because what he was asking me to do, what, what his dad and many of the other folks in the Democratic Party asked me to do was to run against a two-term governor, nine-term congressman who had a million dollars in the bank in like a 90 days. And I was in my second term as county executive. I'd been reelected. I didn't think I had another election in me. I, I you know, I have three young kids. Right. Uh, was working hard, putting the county on a good footing. Right. Um, and when Joe called and said, I'd be honored if you'd run for my seat. Um, I said, I, 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 whoa, I got to sit down with my wife. I got to, I got to pray about this. I got to spend a little time thinking it through. And he said, well, think fast because you got to decide by tomorrow. And right. uh, there was a big press conference and an announcement on Monday. And I, I sort of found myself in the race. And Many I people, when I first got in, thought I did not have a real shot at it. Right. It was uh, a long shot. And I ended up winning by 17 points. I was actually about to bring that up. At that time, you were by far not a shoe-in just because um, <laughs> you being a Democrat and also- That's a nice way to put it. But relatively- By un- far not a shoe-in. <laughs> not a shoe-in and relatively unknown. I mean, but then again, you know, you had- I was a shoe-out. <laughs> but you made it happen. And miracles have been happening time and time again, especially already in the primaries we're seeing it. So I'm super excited about this this coming up election. A little a little worried, but excited, 
you know? Um, and we're gonna talk about why you are here for Joe Biden as well. So what I also want to talk to you about is we have something in common. When I was growing up, every school I went to was a Christian school or a Catholic school. I went to Catholic high school. I went to a Jewish school when I was in eighth grade. And I went to a Christian school from pre-K to, to, to fourth or fifth grade. So I've always been in a Christian school. My stepdad is also an attorney. He's a criminal defense attorney and now a minister. He went to get his actual ministry. He went to ministry school and all those things. So you all, you also have a degree from Yale, Yale as well as a law degree from Yale as well as ministry. So I just find it so interesting how people like you and him reconcile those two things, um, especially with everything that we're seeing going on right now. And I love talking to him about like how, especially as a criminal defense attorney, like how do you feel about this? And he does sometimes have some have some competing thoughts and some competing beliefs of because you kind of have to. Um, but reconciling those things takes some, takes some genius to me. So you tell me, how does your faith influence your politics, influence your policy, and influence how you, how you take care of business in office? Well, Natasha, you know, there, there, so two things if I can. First, um, I don't hide my faith. I think um, folks who are considering voting for me um, should know um, that my faith is central to how I get through life, how I get through hard times and good times. Um, I, I do feel a calling uh, to service, and I seriously considered um, serving in a pulpit as a congregational minister. I am Presbyterian, uh, which is, you know, uh, we have been called the frozen chosen sometimes, um, and I, I love preaching. I still preach um, several times a year. I preached a few weeks ago at the centennial of my home church here in Delaware. Okay. Um, but I also think as an elected official, it's important for me to conduct myself in a way um, that is respectful and welcoming of people I represent who are of a wide range of faiths um, or who come um, to their um, work in my community. Uh, from a humanist or a, an ethical perspective. There, there are folks who I understand have been hurt by organized religion. There are folks in my community uh, who don't think that elected officials um, should proselytize. And so I, I try to keep a balance between the two. Um, I actually spoke to the National Conference of uh, Humanists and Atheists a couple of years ago. A guy named E.J. Dion wrote a column about it in the Washington Post. Um, I, I stood up and started by quoting Matthew 25, which was perhaps a um, sprightly way to begin the engagement. Uh, but I ended up saying to them, um, I, I, I listed off the things that they claimed to care about and to be fighting for, a more just and righteous world, uh, a world in which there was more inclusion and opportunity for people of different sexual orientations, of different races, of different backgrounds, um, a, a focus on addressing climate change, criminal justice. And, and I said to them, um, I might come to addressing climate change from a creation perspective. Uh, I, I think God created heaven and earth and, and put us in a position to be stewards and to be responsible for it. And that's why I think it's important that we be uh, more concerned and more engaged in the ways in which our actions here are polluting the world and are wiping out species and are harming people. Um, that's why I think environmental justice ought to be a central concern for next administration. But you might be an atheist who says, I'm concerned about climate change and environmental justice because I want to treat people well and because I want a livable planet with clean air and clean water for my kids. I care less about why you're standing with me in this fight for environmental justice and climate change than that you are standing exactly. with me in that. My own faith teaches me um, that we should love our neighbors as ourselves and we should define neighbor with as broad an aperture as is possible. Addressing justice and righteousness in the way that we have a significantly different society we do today. Um, and, and I don't hesitate to say that it's that call that I work hard to listen to. Last thing, you know, I, I wrote a, a column for um, a, a divinity, for a publication that that really speaks to divinity school graduates. I went into uh, divinity school with a perspective. I came out um, 
less certain that my perspective is the only perspective that you can reach reading the Gospels. And I would just ask of fellow believers that they humble, um, that they recognize that no one of us has the definitive final outcome. And so when talking to Republicans, Democrats, I try to say my first step is humility. My second step is neighborliness. My third step is love. So. Yeah, I hope I answered your question. No, it did. Briefly. And that actually brings me to the next uh, larger topic of LGBTQ rights and civil rights. Because like you said, you're coming from a place of a little bit more generalized. Like you've learned that there's not one way to interpret the Bible. There's not one way to understand and to apply it to everyday life. So sometimes, um, especially the Black community within the LGBTQ community, feels a little ostracized and feels like things don't necessarily apply to them and they're not really included um, because of Christianity. Um, and they might have been raised in the church themselves, but you know, it, it, they just don't feel a part of it. They don't feel like people like you, not you per se, but people in your position aren't necessarily looking out for them. What would you, and, and you already have a pretty um pretty diverse background in um in advocating for rights and advocating for civil rights and lgbtq rights um the justice and policing act and um ending qualified immunity um for police officers and i mean everything some these are things that we ex we hear from evangelists that are like oh yeah we're all about we're christian and we're this and we're that and we stand for pro pro-life and pro this and pro that pro-christianity but we have someone like you who also is pro-christianity but can see why those things that they are saying can feel like an attack on this community so tell me about um how you're feeling these days when it comes to the racial tensions when it comes to um protesting and flat out saying yeah i'm a christian and yeah i'm you know of of the cloth in a way but I believe in ending qualified immunity. I believe in regulating police, maybe even defunding police. I believe in LGBTQ rights. What, what do you, how do you feel right now? Do you feel like it's more important than ever to be like that right now? Natasha, part of why I'm working so hard for Joe Biden and part of why uh, I am running for reelection is to make lasting change. Uh, I've never in my life seen a moment where literally tens of millions of Americans of every background have taken to the streets, yeah. uh, have said that black lives matter. And uh, we have always been uh, a racist society uh, where um, slavery is at the very beginning of our country. Um, I never forget that I walk into a building every day that I'm at the United States Capitol that was built by slave labor. And I'm from the state of Delaware. Um, this is a state that has both uh, a proud tradition of abolitionism and participation in the Underground Railroad. The Quaker community here in Delaware from the earliest days uh, worked very hard against slavery, but there were slaves in Delaware later than almost anywhere in the entire country. Juneteenth, as we know, uh, was a day that uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was made real for slaves in Galveston, Texas. But in Delaware, there were still people in slavery until the end of 1865. Uh, when the 13th Amendment took effect in Delaware, exactly. Uh, there were a number of border states where, uh, for technical reasons, slavery did not end until the effective date of the 13th Amendment. And Delaware dragged its feet. Uh, Delaware did not ratify the 13th Amendment until 1901. Delaware was literally an apartheid state um, as of the year I was born, 1963. Um, and I've grown up in a community where um, people who, um, were raised in segregated schools, were raised in a segregated community, helped me understand um, what that experience was like and how that experience has um, affected everything else about access to health equity, access to educational opportunity, access uh, to the chances to accumulate wealth and how everything from redlining um, and the way that that excluded African-Americans from having access to home ownership here in Delaware uh, to the ways in which intentionally segregated public schools, even once they were legally integrated, but were still segregated based on neighborhood, but ways in which that left a long and lasting uh, impact on my society. So, so how, uh, I, can you I grew up in a context where the legacy of racism was very real and very had a daily impact. 
and it still does today. And so you asked Natasha, how am I feeling today? I'm yeah. feeling optimistic because Joe Biden is the nominee of the Democratic Party. Uh, and I'm feeling concerned because I think it is still possible for Donald Trump to be reelected president of the United States. Donald yeah. Trump is closer to George Wallace than he is to any other former statewide elected in modern history. He is a populist um, and he rode to election uh, by initially sort of winking and waving at uh, white supremacy and at white nationalism. His comments in Charlottesville, um, the, the video that he shared were one of his own. So um, Joe Biden to run for president uh, was, was President Trump saying there are some very, very good people right. on both sides. Right. There are some racist one's testers on the other. And if we don't have a president who has clarity about that him to make lasting change. Um, can you give me one specific policy that you know for a fact you will be going so hard for um, come, I mean, if not right now, whenever you all are back in session, but um, once the new session takes place, what is one policy that you know you have to get to the floor to address everything you just talked about when it comes to these civil rights or police injustice? <laughs> Natasha, it is really hard to pick one. I know. Um, because, so um, give me a minute, I'll give you an arc, and then let me see whether I'm answering your question. Um, I'm an original co-sponsor of the Justice and Policing Act, uh, which is best known by the advocacy that um, Senators Harris and Booker um, have engaged in on its behalf. It's, it's supported by dozens of Democrats in the Senate. It has already passed the House uh, it is a broad menu of structural reforms to policing. Some of them, it's hard to believe that they haven't happened already. Um, Anti-lynching. I mean, how do we not already have a law that outlaws lynching in the United States? Um, a, a federal registry that allows uh, police officers who have been um, kicked off the force uh, for violating the use of force standard. How do we not already have that in the United States? And then there's others that would be significant moves forward. Uh, empowering the U.S. Department of Justice in pattern and practice behaviors with subpoena power so that in the case of a police department like New Orleans, like Minneapolis, that has a long record of abuse uh, of, of its citizens and misusing force, um, there is a Department of Justice um, tool that they can use to go after that department in a positive way uh, to implement consent decrees. Um, it, there's a lot of components to this bill. It's one that I think we should take up and pass early. Uh, but Senator Wicker and I introduced the Driving for Opportunity Bill um, just two weeks ago. And it's got support from the ACLU, uh, from the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, from a dozen, from the Human Rights Campaign, from a dozen different progressive uh, civil rights and civil liberties organizations. But it's also supported by very conservative groups, Americans for Tax Reform. Um, the, I mean, the Koch Brothers Network. And yep. 11 million Americans have had their driver's license suspended because they can't pay fines that are unrelated to driving. These are criminal fines. And if you have your driver's license taken away, you're more likely to be re-erected, to lose yet this conservative white Republican to co-sponsor with me a bill that would make a real difference in the lives of millions of black and brown Americans, I think shows how I try to approach legislation. Right. I have a perfect, the, 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 the Justice in Policing Act is a prophetic act that we should take up and pass immediately. Yes. But if we don't get there, if we don't have a Democratic majority in the Senate, we don't have a Biden administration, I'm still plugging along working on a bill this driving for opportunity bill that can become law even in my current context. That's a summary, Natasha, for how I try to legislate. Yeah. Keep your eye on the biggest prize, but also make progress day in and day out on things that'll actually matter for people's lives. So I'm gonna come back to reaching across the aisle in just a second, but really quickly, can you okay. say how you feel about um, defunding police? What is your position? Sure. Um, I know that there are advocates who actually believe that what we ought to do is dramatically defund the police. Like literally 
take away a third of their funding and lay off thousands of cops and help shut them down. I don't believe in that. I think that we need to transition who is doing and, and who is policing and how they're policing okay. so that urban policing looks and feels and is experienced more like suburban policing. Mm -hmm. And let me just give a concrete example. When I was a county executive, the agency, the, the law enforcement agency that I was responsible for, you had to have a college degree to become a police officer. They were well-paid, well-equipped, well-trained, and we had specialty services like response units for mental health. If there was a 911 call that seemed to be more about substance abuse or mental health or homelessness or housing, many of the communities that we were policing, which were mostly suburbs, they had healthcare. We had resources to deliver a response that was more about housing than it was about law enforcement. If you deploy law enforcement resources to a call that is really a public health call, you're gonna get a law enforcement response. And so in many urban centers in America and in the majority minority neighborhoods that were our response in Newcastle County, where I was the county executive, you have to have a couple of critical differences. You have to have a broader, inclusive, and representative force. Um, today, the chief of police in Newcastle County is African-American. And a long trajectory over a decade of increasing the diversity of that force was an important priority for me. But you also have to have a broader range of people delivering responses to things that shouldn't just be um, a police response. So when I was a county executive, we had a tragic incident where a mentally ill adult man ended up dying. Um, and the law enforcement, the, the four officers who responded followed their training. Now this was 15 years ago. He didn't need to die. That should not have been a violent encounter. And the, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, their chapter president called me yelling at me the next day saying, you know, you're running a bad police department. And I spent years working with her and working with NAMI to make sure that our police department had different training, different response standards, and different resources. What I think is the best way to respond to the call to defund the police is to increase funding for mental health response, uh, for housing and homelessness response. There are lots of incidents that really are better dealt with by folks who are trained in responding to a man who's having a, a, a schizophrenic moment and who doesn't need to die as a result, but needs access to health care. Right. So, you know, perhaps I've gone into too much detail, but no, in my own you believe in my own career, I've seen the difference it makes when you respond to people as people right. assume that everyone happens to be a threat just because they're black or brown. Right. Fund the root of the problem, not the not the response to the problem is, is what you're saying. Correct. Um, so what I wanted to, to, oh, really quickly, the gun reform, I, I don't really love talking about gun control because it is what it is. If you believe or you don't, but it is interesting coming from a Christian perspective. Um, what, and especially now when we see the, the imbalance and how black people with guns legally are treated versus white people with guns. We've even yeah. heard, you know, um, yep people that are in office right now saying, you know, oh, well, that looks like a mob. If you, if, if a group of black people have a gun, they, that's mob mentality. Why is that mob mentality? What is your take on, on gun reform or gun legislation? What is your take? Um, well, I've co-sponsored and advocated for a wide range uh, of what I view as responsible uh, gun um, uh, reforms. Uh, I've been endorsed by Moms Demand Action. I've been endorsed uh, by Everytown um, because of my advocacy for gun violence reform. One of the things I try to do um, year in and year out, month in and month out, as I talk about gun violence is to um, remind people in my community and across the country um, that there are daily tragedies in communities of color. Um, someone I've been very close to for decades, Latasha Newton, uh, lost her brother um, here in Wilmington in a, in a broad daylight downtown shooting. Um, and th there's something upsetting um, about there being a national focus on gun violence 
only when it's a shooting at a majority white suburban high school in Parkland, right. Florida. This is not meant as any disrespect for the families who lost beloved children in that mass violence incident. But when there's a mass shooting in the suburbs in Connecticut or in the suburbs in Florida, um, and suddenly there's this wave of senators coming to the floor and there's a national moment about it, one of the things I keep trying to say is loss of life through gun violence is happening day in and day out on stoops and, and, yeah. and neighborhoods all over this country. And it should not be a crisis only when a group of white kids in a suburban school gets shot and killed. Um, it has to be recognized as a tragedy that is really weighing on the hearts and, uh, and lives of, of moms all over our country of all different types. Mm -hmm. um, Lucy McBath is someone who I suspect you know well, yes. um, was elected to the United States House of Representatives from a, a district in Georgia who lost her own son in gun violence um, and who I think is deserving of enthusiastic support uh, by those of us who see gun violence as an issue that impacts um, families of all backgrounds, but frankly, is a weight that is borne more heavily by black and brown communities, uh, where an audience that is underreported um, and underaddressed. Um, I recognize and respect the centrality of the Second Amendment to the structure um, of our Bill of Rights and our Constitution, but I think we have gone way too far um, in limiting it. <laughs> Um, in, in allowing the ship of war. I don't know why an AR-15 uh, belongs on the streets of the United States. Um, yeah. and, and I frankly think that we ought to make it harder for people um, who are convicted felons uh, to own and to purchase and to you know, widely carry weapons. Um, and I, I think that we can and should do more to enforce our existing laws around straw purchases um, and to make sure that we close the Charleston loophole uh, and close the gun show loophole. Love it. Um, there's a lot of skepticism. I'm coming back to what you said about reaching across the aisle and working with Republicans anyway. There's a lot of skepticism amongst the black community when it comes to voting, period, point blank. When it comes to elections, when it comes to politics. Now, I have my own issue with that. I've been all about politics since I can remember, so I don't I don't see it the same way, but I understand why they feel how they feel. And when they hear someone say, well, I'm going to work with this Republican to get XYZ done, sometimes it makes them like, oh, wait a minute, are they really on our yep. side or are they just there for them? Yep. Um, what do you say to that? How do you speak to skepticism and people that are hesitant to participate in this voting process? I mean, I, I've literally had that direct conversation uh, with a protester out front of the city county building. Oh gosh, it's probably a month ago now um, when there were about two, 300 protesters and the mayor and I stood up and just said, we're here to take your questions, you know, to have it like we work for you. So, um, and a young man said, why should I vote for you? Why should I vote at all? Why should I believe that someone who looks like you gives a damn or has any interest in or will ever do a darn thing that makes any difference for me? Um, and, and we had a conversation about both sides of this question. First, you know, here's some of the things we've actually gotten done in Wilmington and Delaware and federally that have made a difference. But second, like the way our, the way our government and our system is structured, I have to compromise. And in order for us to pass legislation, in order for us to make progress, uh, we can't just pretend that Republicans go away and that people who disagree with us are just done with. And um, th that's hard to hear yeah. when your entire life experience says that this system is racist, that this system doesn't care about you, that this system um, engages in violent suppression of you and your family and your loved ones. Um, and I respect and understand how hard it is to believe anything good about this system. Um, but I've seen change in my state and in my country in my lifetime. And I do think, I, I do think things have gotten less bad. Um, I, I respect people who say, you know, to hell with all of you. Um, <laughs> but, you know, at the end of the day, I think Donald Trump is demonstrably worse for black America than Joe Biden. And I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think that change were right. possible. And there are ways in which I've seen that change happen right. in my own state, my own community, in my lifetime. 
Um, let's move on to COVID craziness. But before we do, um, how, can you tell me, because we don't ask men this question enough, how are you dealing with everything? What is your self-care? How, you're a senator, so you gotta deal with this every day. I mean, there's no like, well, I'm just gonna go sit back and chill and take a day off. Like, it's nonstop. And you have three kids, you have a wife, and you're dealing with COVID in your personal life and you're literally dealing with it for us as a country. How do you deal personally? What's your self-care routine? Um, um, my wife, uh, in all of this, and, and shares a lot of my values and priorities and is an unbelievable mom. Um, she gets up early and goes and runs um, three days a week and swims the other days. And we've been having a conversation about the ways in which, bluntly, uh, I've put on some weight. Uh, <laughs> my blood pressure is higher. Oh, and no. so um, this morning I got up an hour earlier than I thought I otherwise could or would. And I went and walked two miles. My daughter literally just texted me to say, when are you going to be home so we can go for our walk this evening? Um, I'm trying to, um, you know, so first, and I know, look, look, worship is worship, but prayer is also, I have a daughter who meditates and yes. Um, she thinks that meditation really is important for me. Um, I say it's prayer. She says it's meditation. I'll tell you what I'm doing is taking some time and reminding myself of what this picture is behind me, which is there's stuff that was here before me. There's stuff that'll be here after me. And it's all connected to the transcendent or the way I would put it. Um, God blesses us and we should take a moment um, and, and seek God's blessing by being humble. So if we can find time in our day to be quiet, to humble ourselves and to center ourselves, um, I think that's um, the best way to care for ourselves. For me, time with my daughter, time with my sons, time with my wife um, is a rare and, and valuable thing. Last night, my son, my daughter, and I spent an hour last night actually making dill pickles. So um, if you take a little bit of time and reconnect with the things yeah. that were normal before COVID um, and take a little bit of time and be um, patient with yourself and forgiving for yourself. And then last, I'll just say, you know, for, for me, knowing that I am forgiven um, and living into that reality and believing it is a key part of being able to keep going. There, there are people who texted me, who emailed me, who called me today, who I haven't gotten back to yet. Um, when I get home, I have a list of, you know, here's the 10 things I've got to do tonight. Forgiving myself for putting my family first and then getting back to my constituents later tonight is an important part of being able to breathe. That's so important. Women take notes. Men, see how men can do that? See how they can prioritize? We can too. <laughs> so before we wrap, I definitely want to get in at least these two extremely important um, topics with you. And one kind of relates to COVID. Um, Maxine Waters, Representative Maxine Waters, um, introduced the Emergency Housing Protection Protections and Relief Act. Um, this allocates $100 billion to emergency rental assistance program. And I think it's genius because everyone keeps yep. talking about rental relief, but there's no rental relief. There's literally, there's a rental freeze. I mean, a freeze on that you can get evicted or you can't, but there's nobody relieving my rent or my mortgage. So this, of course, passed the House, but what, Senator Coons, what are you going to do to get this passed in the Senate? Because it has to be. It has to. I believe that is the same bill that Senator Brown, Sherrod Brown of Ohio, is leading in the Senate and of which I'm a co-sponsor because it's also $100 billion for emergency relief okay. uh, for rents and mortgages. The larger point you're making, Natasha, is that if we're going to spend another trillion or $2 trillion in this next COVID relief bill before the election, there's got to be some funding in there for housing, for schools, for hospitals, for families. Um, and, and I know I'm a co-sponsor of a $100 billion uh, rental and mortgage relief bill. Okay. Well, I know Mitch McConnell's not gonna have it, but please, whatever no. you need to do, whatever you need to do, whatever reaching across the aisle you need to do, we all need the rent relief, okay? So let's make this happen. <laughs> um, all right. Yes, so, ma'am. <laughs> so with black women being obviously the background of a lot of, or the backbone of a lot of things. Can you tell me, 
how you personally, within your purview of your space and your career and your personal life, how have you personally um, reciprocated um, and, and, and made sure that Black women were heard, understood, um, listened to, incorporated, included? How do you make sure that, and it's not just performative talk, how do you right. include Black women in your everyday? Um, so sort of small, medium, and large, short-term, long-term. Um, one of the people who just texted me before I started this call with you um, is Cynthia Curtis. I still call Cynthia Pumpkin. Um, I've known her since she was 10 years old. She's now 40. Um, she's a hairdresser, but she's also, to me, um, that uh, wonderful, awkward, spindly kid who I mentored when she was in middle school. Oh. And one of the ways that Cynthia has been an enormous gift to me, I'm going to, um, Cynthia let me be a part of her life. Um, she let me um, know about her mother's struggles. She trusted me um, to be a part of the circle of people who comforted her when her mother passed. Um, and she's someone who I've managed to stay friends with and stay in touch with. Um, for what is now 30 years. And so on a, on a personal level, her journey, her struggles, you know, when I was talking to her literally in eighth grade at Bancroft Middle School and said, what do you dream of? What do you want to be? She wanted to be a hairdresser. And she wanted to be a hairdresser because she understood the role um, that black women play in um, support and education. She wanted to be an entrepreneur. She wanted to own her own business. She wanted to be in charge of herself and her life. Um, and just last year, um, Cynthia got an award from AIDS Delaware um, for being someone who was proactive and engaged in talking with her own um, friends and uh, customers about getting tested, about knowing if you're positive or not. Um, today, she is comfortable saying that her mother died of HIV AIDS at the time when it happened. Happened. I'm very, 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 uh, was very troubled about it. And it's been a long, given the gift of being a part of her journey has made a huge difference in my life. Um, when I could tell another dozen stories, but when I had the opportunity to begin working with a group of 50 um, middle school kids in the east side of Wilmington, um, I thought I was giving them something in terms of launching a program and starting engagement. And the opposite is true. Um, the gift that they've given me of knowing them as people, of hearing and seeing their struggles and challenges, and of helping um, at different points along the way as they and now their children um, have moved from being children to being adults. I mean, their kids are older than my kids today, which is hard for me to believe. And they've been putting up with me um, since I was this awkward, you know, early, mid 20 year old, just trying to do something good in my own community. That's the personal side. In the professional side, um, I work with folks in my campaign team and in my official office to make sure that Black women are present in the room, are heard, are engaged, um, and are part of the advocacy team in my office. Um, that's not something I'm doing because I'm trying to, you know, get get some gold star or hit some, you know, uh, I'm, I'm doing it because there is a wisdom and a depth um, and a righteousness um, to the voice that Black women bring to my life every day um, that would be absent otherwise. And I would not be capable of being the leader I am or of sustaining the service that I do without that voice in my room and in my office and in my life. Yeah, I love the personal mentorship aspect. And I love what you just said. That's, that's what we want to hear. And that's what we want. So thank you. Um, and knowing knowing how you feel about this how do you feel about reparations um and it's something that i know i know how joe biden feels but i want to know how senator coons feels because we did talk earlier about the wealth gap and the education gap and all these different gaps and we all know the root of the center of this issue is usually money and it's usually yep economic disparities that are setting us up to have a gap that we can never close. So the way we close that gap is reparations. How do we feel? That's right. Um, so a year ago, 
uh, I joined Cory Booker as a co-sponsor in his uh, reparations bill, which is Senate Bill 1083. Um, more importantly than co-sponsoring a bill, um, in my appropriation subcommittee, I am pushing relentlessly um, on things that may be less well-known, community development, financial institutions, investment in minority-serving institutions, investment in programs that make uh, higher education, home ownership, affordable loans um, a reality. It's one thing to study reparations. It's another thing to actually invest yeah. uh, in making health equity real, economic opportunity real, and access to higher education real. Um, so I think we have to move on two tracks at the same time. I think we have to have a commission that actually looks at and studies what is a practical way to get reparations done. And in the meantime, I think we need to get about the business of actually making the doors of opportunity open in a way that is specific about addressing what is a 400-year-old debt that has gone unpaid for too long um, and that respects and recognizes and responds to the reality um, that a lot of the wealth of this country um, was built by slave labor and has never been paid and has never been compensated and is a debt that is owed. Can the compensation start um, in a way with small business and entrepreneurship? So you sit on the Small Business and yes. Entrepreneurship Committee in the Senate. Now, I'm an yes. entrepreneurial yes. woman. And this is like, this is why I was extremely excited to talk to you um, about this. Black women are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in this country. And a lot of times yep. I feel like we're left out of the, po the, the, the possibilities of help, um, the, the access to grants, access to loans, because we focus so much on small businesses being traditional small businesses, brick and mortar and following these specific rules. These days, almost 60% of businesses that are starting are digital only. And so yep. there's not really much, and I'm a digital business that's been, we're celebrating our 15th year, and I'm seeing the issues, you know, with, yes, we qualify for PPP, but so many other people didn't. And is there going to be another PPP because two and a half months is not enough. So what can we do from your position to help out black women? And maybe this is another form of reparations. I don't know. But how do we help out these entrepreneurs who are non-traditional forms of business who we miss out on a lot of the, the lot of help, a lot of the help from the SBA? Um, so um, a bill that I've introduced and I'm going to fight hard for when we get back next week into session is the prioritized PPP program, uh, which uh, focuses on it, it specifically dedicates $25 billion in a rapid second round of PPP loans to those businesses that employ 10 or fewer and that suffered 50% or more revenue loss, where the explicit goal is to try and reach the unbanked, the underbanked, those who um, took the hardest hit, which is overwhelmingly um, women and minority-owned businesses. Exactly. First, second, um, one of the things I'm pushing for in my appropriation subcommittee is an additional billion dollars for community development financial institutions um, that will prioritize loans in minority-serving institutions. Uh, in the east side of Wilmington, there's something called Stepping Stones Federal Credit Union um, that I have in my mind as the example of what it is we're trying to accomplish, which is to provide access to credit um, for starting a small business, for buying a home, um, for avoiding um, predatory payday lenders, for dealing with some of the ways in which um, the black and brown communities of the United States have been historically disadvantaged in terms of access to credit and in terms of knowing about and participating in SBA programs. Um, if we move towards a Democratic-controlled Senate and Ben Cardin becomes the chairman of the Small Business Committee, uh, I am optimistic that we will see a dramatic expansion um, in programming that is specifically prioritizing um, African-American businesses and women-owned businesses, um, partly because of his own experience in Prince George's County um, and as someone who represents a community um, where there is an enormous amount of African diaspora entrepreneurship uh, and black women-led entrepreneurship in his own home community in Baltimore. Love that. Perfect. That's what we want to hear. Um, so these, are, you're up to, up to date on pop culture, <laughs> it seems. It seems like you, you get it. I, I'm shocked, but it seems like you're here for it and you understand. Um, have you seen these memes, the you about to lose your job memes? 
Yes. <laughs> yes, I have, but really only because of my college-age kids who keep me up to date. Um, and, you know, I, I hope that's not meant to apply to me because I'm hoping no. I'm going to keep my job through no. election. No, I wanted to um, know from you. But I've seen plenty of incidents where my daughter shows me one of these and says, can you believe this guy just did this? Yeah. He's about to lose his job. So that's what I want to know from you. Are, do you feel like, you know, you are a generation, I guess my parents' generation, and sometimes you all think that our social media craziness is just that, craziness. But we're seeing it actually have an effect. Um, do you, are you, are, do you co-sign that? Is that something that you encourage? Like, yeah, I mean, it seems all kind of fun and quirky, but it's actually creating some solutions. People that are racist, or sexist are getting fired from their jobs because we cannot say these jobs like Nike and all these other corporations can't say, oh, we're not for racism and we're trying to change, but you employ or admit to your school racist people. So are you okay? That's right. Do you agree with this? Are you okay with the social media culture? And some people like to call it cancel culture, but what do you think about it? So let's, I mean, we could, we could go into lots of examples. I'm, I'm uh, forgetting his name right now, but the birder who was in Central Park, who had a yes. confrontation with yeah. a white woman, yes. who's like There's yelling people. at him and saying, you know, I'm getting on the phone and saying, you're threatening my life. She had some very negative repercussions in her life and she should. You, you, you shouldn't misuse um, white privilege and your ability to call 911 on somebody Mm -hmm. um, to, to harass and, and oppress and abuse. And so, um, you know, I, I thought it was remarkable that he chose to forgive her. Um, that to me was a, a striking act of grace. Um, but, you know, frankly, millions of people got to see her behaving in a really bad, you know, um, and I think to the extent that um, for far too long, um, white privilege has been made real in small but painful ways. Um, you know, you've got a young white person, young black person go into a store. Who gets followed? The black person. Who gets told, no, we're not open anymore? Who gets told, I can't cash your check right now? Who gets told, oh, we just rented out that apartment? You know, when, when, when I was in county government and we would do fair housing enforcement, a lot of how we had to do fair housing enforcement was to send a white couple and a black couple to the same house the same day and have them both apply. Today, with these things, you know, with the, with, with the power that cell phones yeah. give us, it is possible to know about, to call out, and to fight back yeah. against explicitly right. racist behavior in ways that weren't possible before because not everybody in the country could document it. Yeah. I, I completely forgot to bring this up during the PPP discussion. It just r reminded me something you said, because um, we're talking about seeing people do crazy things and documenting it, because now we can. We've seen companies um, like Kanye West and the Yeezy organization um, and Kushner's, Jared Kushner's friends and, and people like that, that were all qualifying for all this money for PPP that really should not have qualified. How do we reconcile things like that when we're calling it out, yet nothing is happening even when we call out the foolishness that we see and the wrongdoings that we see? How are we going to prevent it from keep happening again when it comes to money, not just somebody being racist, but also nepotism and also uh, favoritism? Like, how are we, how are we reconciling that? N Natasha, that question broke up a bit. So let me give an answer to what I think was your question, um, which is there are some ways in which um, the, the Paycheck Protection Program or the PPP, which is a loan program for the SBA, um, once it became public, who had received those loans, um, there was a lot of pushback. Yes. Uh, I will tell you that the Secretary of the Treasury initially did not intend to make any of that public. And it was really only because of steady um, acts of public pressure by Senator Booker, by myself, by Senator Cardin, by other senators on the Small Business Committee um, that the Secretary changed position and agreed to release the details of who got the money. And then once there was a lot of media pressure, there right. were dozens of companies that should not have received that money that gave it back. 
So right. there was some impact on it. Right. When it comes to Jared Kushner and nepotism in the Trump family, I'll tell you that President Trump, in the run-up to this fall, you are going to hear all sorts of stuff about Joe Biden's family and Donald Trump's family. Mm -hmm. The only way that the stuff with Donald Trump's family changes is if there's a change in who's president. And I don't for the president of the United States to own a global pay for him to go golfing at his own golf courses over and over and over. Republicans who control the majority in the Senate are not holding him accountable for this, but this president has had more public money spent so that he can go golfing at his own golf course than has, has ever happened. There is more self-dealing in that piece of this administration than has ever happened in modern history. That only changes when whose president changes. Agree, 100% agree. So we have to wrap, but I do wanna end with, um, I want you to tell our readers, listeners, viewers, tell us what we need to know about Senator Coons and about what is happening in America right now. What, what kind of words of wisdom can you leave us with? But I also wanna know why people in your position and people like you tend to not come and talk to people like me, like you're doing right now, which is so admirable, so needed. Why is it so difficult for other people to do this? You know, like there's so much wisdom we can impart on each other. Um, tell me, like how, let's, let's wrap this with that, with that nugget. So two things, if I can, you know, I've been running for office here in Delaware for 20 years. And if this were a typical with people and meet with people and listen to people, um, I do make a regular effort in every year and in every campaign to be accessible to, accountable to the black community in my own home state because it's formed such a critical part of my own life, my own experience, and my own reason for being engaged in public service. Addressing yeah. racial inequality is a key part of why I, no one's ever suggested that I'm young, black, and fabulous before today. So thank you for welcoming me into the circle um, of sure. the folks who are on this right now. I would be happy to, to help connect you to other U.S. senators Love and other, other folks who are seeking office. Part of why this is important is so that you have a chance to hear from me directly, ask me questions directly and to hold me accounting me that you'll let me back on again in the future and we'll have a chance for a second interview. That is what I hope as well. I really, really, really appreciate this. Thank you so much. Good luck to your daughter as well. I know she started at NYU and with all this craziness happening, I hope everyone stays safe and she can still go to school and do what she needs to do. And you can be dad and, and encourage her to stay safe. <laughs> So thank you so much for this. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Okay. It's been great okay. being on with you, Natasha. Thank you. Yes. And where can people go to donate or find out more about your campaign? Where do we need to go to connect to you? The website is Okay. And there's a whole lot of contact and material there for anybody who's interested in learning more or seeing more. Perfect. And we're going to put it in the description box. Thank you so much for doing this. Much appreciated. Thank you. Good luck with everything.